lockdown life is set to continue but when will we be free do our leaders even know plus the plague of the non-apology apology apology. and if you think our politicians are struggling just be thankful we're not relying on donald trump to save us he just struggles with the basic functions of being president he has to connect with people in a different way Hello, Paul Osborne here. Thank you for downloading this latest podcast produced, of course, at the appropriate social distance. The novelty of our new normal is clearly wearing off. Tempers are beginning to fray. Joggers who get too close during our government-mandated exercise are likely to get a mouthful of abuse. So, to be honest, is anybody who comes within six feet of us. As we search for something, anything, to feel optimistic about, thank God for Captain Tom Moore, the 99-year-old veteran who wanted to raise £1,000 for the NHS and within a few days have made £14 It is no surprise, really, that we've taken him to our hearts. It is literally the first good thing that has happened to this country for weeks, apart maybe from that episode of Car Share. And even that was shorter than this podcast. There's a lot to talk about, but first of all... After his near-death experience, after contracting the coronavirus, wasn't it exactly what you would expect of Boris Johnson to be able to say he is risen on Easter Sunday? The Prime Minister, quite rightly, remains on sick leave, recovering from his ordeal. But without its leader, the government is struggling to get a grip on a series of problems in its response to the pandemic. We'll look at those failings over testing, protective equipment and what looks like a real crisis in care homes a little later on. But first of all, how are you coping with the lockdown? Hopefully well, because you've got at least another three weeks to get through. The worst kept secret in Westminster is out. The restrictions on our movements will last until at least the first week of May. It is too soon, according to Dominic Raab, to even consider watering them down. And it is far from clear that we will be released from these restrictions after six weeks either. Let's bring in Robert Meakin at this stage. Uh, Robert, look, nobody's surprised by that move. And I I found the public attitude to this is a bit confusing because on the one hand people have observed these restrictions with a rigor that i think few people in westminster expected you've had people saying we never actually thought when we told them all to stay indoors that they all would but at the same time people are crying out for a sign of when it's all going to end yeah and i must admit i do have uh, i have sympathy for the the government in that regard a regular line of media questioning is exactly that. When is this going to end? Can you give us a sort of idea of a of an aim, of a deadline for things to get back to, quote, something close to normal, in inverted commas? And, of course, quite responsibly and quite rightly, any government minister has to say, well, no, I can't do that. I can't say because, frankly, we don't know. They are... You know, I know we'll discuss about how the government is handling the information they receive, but they are they are getting this information on a daily basis, and the narrative is changing, and the government are responding accordingly. So it is while there's a natural human instinct, a natural media instinct to say, "Give us an idea." When does this change? Quite rightly, at the moment, the government can't play ball. 
Labour have been you know, leading the demands for some kind of exit strategy, and other countries have set out plans, France, Germany, Switzerland, for example. Indeed, Italy and Spain, two of the worst affected countries, are now tentatively starting to relax some of the restrictions. But we've been told not only is it too soon to ease the restrictions, it's too soon to set out a plan. And I suppose the problem is that that leads you to fear that there isn't an exit strategy, that the first one was herd immunity. Well, that went really well when we realised that we could easily lose a quarter of a million lives. The second would be a vaccine, which could be 18 months away. And the only other one that anyone seems to be able to think of is that you would very, very slowly relax the restrictions and desperately hope that there won't be a second peak either later in the year over the summer or towards the end of the year when the flu season kicks in. Yes, and that is an understandable terror on the government's part that if they misjudge it, we are going to face deadly consequences. I think you're right saying that they haven't ever been able to develop a clear strategy to date. And obviously, it's an unenviable position they're in. But if they now say or give any sort of indication, well, this is our aspiration. This is what we want. This is this is what we're aiming to do. Only for that strategy to go up in flames within days, people are going to be right on them again, saying, "Well, you have no control of what you're doing." So hence, they don't sort of raise hopes, only to only to sort of terrify people or let people down further down the line. So that's why you're getting this very very cautious narrative, and I don't see that changing. You know, the, the problem is you got political pressure that people feel restless unhappy they want to feel that there is light at the end of the tunnel they want to feel that there will be an end to this and there's an economic pressure as well you know the economy's already suffered hugely we've had the warnings this week about just how bad it might be the real threat of another long period of austerity to pay down the debts that we're building up and keeping the economy afloat but of course there's also a political price that you would pay if you ended the restrictions too soon and that led us into a second wave of infections Yes, and that would be, I, th- I think, uh, be in terms of the the public's view on the government, would be the the worst crime of all, the most irresponsible thing to do. If it was just out of economic panic, the government says, "Okay, let's chance it here," only for there to be an upsurge in the virus. I mean, they they would be understandably ferociously condemned, and then the very prominent TV you know, journalist muggings of government ministers, where a Piers Morgan or such like is just there, who's, who's just battering the hell out of someone on screen. And while he may, may you know, very strongly argue, I'm doing this just to get, get, to the, get to the truth and actually find out and hold these people accountable, I'm just really not convinced that sort of journalism is doing anybody any good at the moment, where you're essentially catching people out. And it is, it's, it's the gotchas, isn't it? And Alistair Campbell, of all people, wrote a blog uh, about a week or so ago in which he listed 20 questions that he would like to hear asked at these daily news conferences and who made the point that, that perhaps it's actually a mistake. And a lot of people have said this. It shouldn't maybe be the political editors, the political correspondents who are asking the questions. It should be the science and health journalists. And, and since that was said, you know, we have seen the BBC's health correspondent, ITV science correspondent, asking the question sometimes, you know, from a different angle. And that does, I think, get better information out, particularly out of obviously the health and scientific officials who are there every day, than trying to get a politician to stray into a bear trap. Yeah, I think so. that's 
that the nature of the beasts. So, yeah, people who've worked in the, the lobby at Westminster, they are in a world where it's are you going to resign, Minister? Is that a is that a U-turn on your part, Minister? Didn't you say this only three months ago, Minister? Now you're saying that, blah, blah, blah. And I think you're right to say that doesn't quite fit presently. Well, the pressure on our leaderless government is clearly starting to tell. Matt Hancock lost his rag this week on Radio 4. The stress is understandable, but the questions that are annoying cabinet ministers are coming because some people still don't think that the government is on top of things. Uh, There seem, Robert, to be a number of unanswered challenges. The lockdown and when it will end, which we've already talked about. Secondly, the continuing failings over the levels of protective equipment that are being delivered to people who are dealing with the patients, dealing with the people who have the coronavirus. You know, the same Matt Hancock who got chippy on the radio this week was a few days earlier suggesting that the reason some hospitals are running short of PPE is that it's being overused. You know, how, one wonders, do you overuse protective equipment. One person uh, replied to him on Twitter, works in a care home, and said, by overuse equipment, do you mean if I put an apron on and I take one elderly resident to the toilet, I should then leave that apron on to prepare lunch for the next one? Being being the health secretary, you could argue, is probably the, the, the worst job in the country presently. Hancock is clearly under all manner of pressure. I don't I don't blame him for occasionally snapping, but in that instance, that was uh, extremely unfortunate, to put it politely. And obviously, it was a red rag to a bull uh, to the to the people who are actually on the front line having to deal with this presently, who, who knew what he was saying was essentially a load of old tosh. And then there's the problem with testing. You know, again, I, I, I hate to, to join the pylon on Matt Hancock, but it was he who said that by the end of April, we would hit 100,000 tests a day well we've got two weeks to go and the highest total we've managed so far is fifteen thousand. now look barring a miracle that target is going to be missed now it was probably a ludicrously optimistic target but if you're going to promise a hundred thousand tests a day and fail you could have promised a million you could have promised 10 million promise a figure that you know or at least realistically expect to be able to deliver. I think this goes back to what we're saying before. And hence now, while journalists are getting very, very wound up, that the government isn't really being very open about any target whatsoever. I think you can see why, because that was a much publicised target on the health secretary's part early on. That unless there's a remarkable turnaround, is, is going to get nowhere near. And so the, the government are being burnt by that. I think when you start banding around any figure, any time scale at the moment, and is, there's every chance that it, events aren't going to play out that way just because of the nature of this crisis. So, yes, Hancock has been well and truly burnt by that and has no doubt learnt his lesson. And then there is the situation in our care homes, which exploded into public consciousness this week. You wonder how this has fallen through the gaps for such a long time. There are more than 400,000 people in the UK who live in care homes. They may include your grandparents, your parents, and yet the staff working there seem to have little or no protective equipment, and the residents appear to have been abandoned, written off in many cases, before they've even been infected. We've had all these terrible stories of people being told that should their elderly relative in a care home contract the coronavirus, they would not even be considered for hospital treatment. They would basically be nursed to their end in the care home. Matt Hancock only started to address this 
after days of negative press coverage, has been promising that you know, relatives will be able to share final moments with them, which up until now has seemed extremely unlikely. But he has on this issue been reactive instead of proactive. If I dare to see a positive in this amid all the, the, the appalling news, I just hope that A, people who work in care homes at this crisis will see them being treated, A, with more respect, more consideration, frankly, being paid more, and B, that just uh, that we uh, the issue of, of, a, of an ageing population, at least it is it's being brought to the forefront. I don't think we could ever realistically go on in the same way where it, in terms of social care in this country. It has been nothing short of an utter disgrace for a long, long time. So out of all this horror, I do hope that it comes to the fore that, say, people who are in these situations, the elderly people who are living in these care facilities, often require a lot more consideration, respect and care, and be that the people obviously tasked with looking after them also require a great deal more support. Clearly there are many more. There are thousands more coronavirus deaths in the UK than the official figures would suggest. And not just in care homes, in the community too. You can see other problems coming over the hill towards us. Reports out of London in the last few days that many more seriously ill patients are dying at home before ambulances can get to them. Now, in part, they're not calling 999 because they don't want to be a burden to what they believe to be an overburdened NHS. It's that message about protecting the NHS that has been so successful. They have concentrated so much on that stay-at-home, protect-the-NHS message, and they forgot for a long time to tell people that they should still turn up at A&E if they have a serious illness. Now, look, there's a lot to praise about the way things have gone in the last few weeks. The lockdown is clearly working. Normally, someone with coronavirus would infect two or three other people. We've now been told the average has dropped below one. That's pivotal, because when that happens, the outbreak starts to fade. But that doesn't excuse sending the NHS staff that we applaud every Thursday into intensive care units without the right kit. It doesn't excuse failing to send that kit to people in care homes or abandoning hundreds of thousands of our elderly relatives in care, our parents, our grandparents, just writing them off as collateral damage. These are things that we should not be doing. Now, quite rightly, we have heard nothing from Boris Johnson since his release from hospital over Easter. He is resting at Chequers. But you can't help wondering if his narrow escape from his encounter with the coronavirus might change him. I mean, he certainly looked pretty emotional during that video that was released after his discharge from hospital, name-checking the nurses, particularly two from Portugal and New Zealand, who spent 48 hours at his bedside during the period when he said uh, it could have gone either way. There is a difference, I think, between driving around the country in a bus making nonsensical promises about the NHS and experiencing emergency NHS care during a pandemic. Now, look, I am not the first person to point out that the coronavirus has highlighted the enormous value, not just of those staff in the health and care sectors, but supermarket workers, delivery drivers, all these other people who had been written off just a few weeks before in the new immigration policy as unskilled labour. So oh, might this, you know, might this actually maybe change him? I think unavoidably so. 
I was listening to the now former Tory MP Nicholas Soames, who had a mighty falling out with Boris over Brexit policy. But he suggested Boris had come in as Prime Minister as a party political leader and now had the hallmarks potentially of looking like a national leader. If you're sympathetic towards Boris Johnson at the moment, that's that's what you'll be feeling, that he has, uh, because it's a time of crisis, that the you know, normal party political hostilities, prejudices have been put to one side and it's a national leader that we need and people who like Boris think he's the man to, to fulfil that role. He, he does look like a national leader. I think it will have humbled him. It would have given him the most you know, scary of reality checks being there fighting for his own life. I don't know how it cannot change him, how it cannot change his perceptions. And let's hope that there is a good that comes out of it. Let's hope that uh, in terms of his his own attitude towards the NHS, the, the government's attitude towards the NHS, they, they, it will give it will give him more insight into what is needed, what is required, the sacrifice that people make working there day in, day out. Let, let, let us hope that's the case. Now, the coronavirus isn't the only plague that stalks the world with no cure. There is still, it seems, no cure for the epic levels of idiocy that surround the White House. This week, Donald Trump apologist and longtime inhabitant of a haunted mirror, Kellyanne Conway, mistakenly assumed that the reason the virus is called COVID-19 is not because it was discovered in 2019, but because there were 18 previous versions that she had somehow never heard about. While our own government's news conferences can be, shall we say, frustrating, they are as nothing compared to the insane bear pit that plays out at around 11pm our time every night as President Dum Dum throws his toys out of the pram. It reached an all-time low, even for the orange-hued toddler-in-chief this week, with an unhinged rant against anyone who dared to suggest that he had mishandled a pandemic that has so far claimed close to 30,000 American lives. Well, Simon Marks from Feature Story News in Washington was watching with his head in his hands. Well, look, Donald Trump press conferences are never without moments that are extraordinary and that end up getting etched in the memory. But that particular briefing, lasting as it did for more than two hours, was beyond anything that we've previously seen. The uh, furious arguments with members of the press who were asking perfectly respectful questions uh, about why he didn't take very much action during the entire month of February to prepare the country for the onslaught of coronavirus and found themselves on the receiving end of the um, usual fury, but this time I think with even more invective about how they're fake and their networks are fake, coupled with the fact that this is a president who can never ever find the voice that presidents of all parties in the past have found to express the nation's condolences and sympathies to the uh, now tens of thousands of Americans who have died. There's never a moment where, in any expansive way, he conveys that message to the American public. He just struggles with the basic functions of being president. He has to connect with people in a different way, and this is the way that he's chosen to do it. But it is extraordinarily narcissistic under the best of circumstances and we are definitely this week at least not witnessing the best of circumstances you see a president who to all intents and purposes now appears to be fully unhinged 
and assume that he can't possibly be re-elected in November, but I imagine it's probably not as simple as that. No, well, I think, first of all, I think he's acting in the way that a man would act who is determined that none of the blame for this crisis is going to stick to him. So, first of all, this constant assertion that the federal government, as he has put it, is just backup. It's really the individual governors of the individual states that have taken the decisions that they've taken with regard to healthcare facilities, with regard to closing their uh, states down, with regard to lockdowns. He wouldn't even accede uh, last week to the declaration of a national lockdown like so many other leaders around the world have declared in their territories, saying that he was morally and constitutionally opposed to it. Well, that's a translation for the man saying, I don't want to be uh, blamed for it when this is all over. The flip side of that coin is he definitely wants to be the man who uh, says he has total authority, which of course is constitutionally total nonsense, to reopen the country's economy. He only wants to own the sunshine aspects of this story. Putting everybody back to work, getting everything back to normal, that bit of this crisis he wants to own. The rest of it, he's going to be blaming the Chinese for what happened here. He's already once again referring to coronavirus as the Wuhan virus in his briefings at the White House. He's going to blame Democrat governors of key states like New York, California. He thinks it's going to translate into re-election. That's why he's gone so fervently after the World Health Organization, accusing them of doing all the terrible things that his opponents argue he actually did. The stage is set for an absolutely brutal re-election battle uh, that we're all going to witness between now and November. And he's going to go after a whole multitude of targets, including, of course, the media who he is already ritually accusing of being fake and having misstated the facts regarding his perfect response to the arrival of coronavirus in the United States. Can he win that election? Yes, absolutely he can win the election because we are largely existing now here in a post-fact environment. There is no sense among many Americans, particularly uh, those who are fervent Donald Trump supporters, that facts actually matter. They believe Leave whatever he says. And if he says this is all the fault of the World Health Organization, the White House correspondent for CBS News and the Democrats, they will believe that. He is, though, isn't he, the worst possible person to have in a position like this for a crisis like this. We had always wondered what it was that would break America with Donald Trump in charge. We never imagined it would be the coronavirus. Yeah, look, I mean, I think the thinking classes here in Washington, D.C., Democrats and Republicans, had long feared the national security crisis that was going to put him to the ultimate test. They did not imagine that it was going to be a global pandemic, but it has been coronavirus that has revealed just how at sea he is in the presidency. And, you know, by contrast, I have to say, you know, Vice President Mike Pence has appeared far more presidential throughout the course of this crisis than Donald Trump. Mike Pence is the man who's going to the microphone immediately expressing the nation's sympathies and condolences for the loss of life, sending prayers to families all over the country and the friends of victims, praising healthcare workers. He's the man who is finding those presidential cadences. And the contrast is absolutely astounding. And 
And as much as Donald Trump has appeared unhinged at times with these claims that he has total authority that he doesn't enjoy or this is all the fault of the media or the fault of the World Health Organization, Mike Pence has largely been, from a political perspective, the kind of the voice of reason here. And he has, I think, sent a message to the American public through that, that behind the scenes... He is helping steer the ship of state through the absolutely mad waters in which it finds itself, waters in which Ivanka Trump, the president's daughter, uh, is now being mooted as a central player uh, in terms of making decisions about how the country is going to reopen. His son-in-law, her husband, Jared Kushner, uh, has played a prominent role in calling all of his old friends and seeing if any of them could help hook him up with some face masks. I mean, it has been a baffling family story behind the scenes as well. And Mike Pence, I think, very much conveys a message to the American public that there is, at least in his office, some serenity here and some logic and some calm in terms of uh, of approaching this crisis. Simon Marks there. Well, lastly, it's been a week for welcome returns with Boris Johnson's release from hospital. We've had some unwelcome returns too. Who's this? drafted into the not-exactly-top-billing Easter Saturday coronavirus news conference. Yes, it's perma-smirking alleged bully Pretty Patel. The Home Secretary again managed to show just how firmly her finger rests on the pulse of the nation when she responded to a question about the failings in the provision of protective equipment by saying she was sorry if people feel there have been failings. Sorry, Robert, that you feel there have been failings. She's not sorry for the failings because she doesn't think there were any. If the coronavirus is going to change anything in politics, can it please change this classic politician's non-apology apology to say, I'm sorry you feel I'm an incompetent half-witted bully who couldn't manage my way out of a wet paper bag is not the same as actually being sorry for being a half-witted incompetent, and let alone does it imply that you're actually going to do anything about it. Now, it's translated as, uh, yeah, I, I, I'm sorry you don't understand that you're wrong, essentially, is what she is saying. Now, uh, Priti Patel, I would say, you know, d- during these these terrible times, I- ideally you do need a, a, a figure who exudes some sort of empathy and uh, I, I think critics of Pretty Patel would suggest that that's not necessarily her gig. The milk of human kindness doesn't seem to be necessarily flowing. A typically, uh, well, a rather cringeworthy uh, performance. My, my favourite response was somebody who took a still from the original Star Wars film of Darth Vader wagging his finger at Princess Leia and saying, I'm sorry if you feel we blew up your home planet of Alderaan. <laughs> uh, that, is, uh, that is where we will leave it for now. And look, I'm sorry if you feel we've gone on too long. And I'm sorry if you feel it's the wrong time to ask for a review or rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you happen to be listening. I'm sorry too if you feel we waste too much time urging you to get in touch on Twitter, Facebook or Instagram at Party Games Pod or to head to PartyGamesPodcast.com. I would end by urging you all to stay at home, but hey, that's the law these days. So stay safe and until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.